Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and as always, I'm really grateful to have you here. If you like or love this podcast project, please try to find a way to support it by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and or supporting the cost of transcription via our Patreon. I have one more episode releasing next month in July, and then I'll be taking a bit of a hiatus from releasing episodes like I did last year. We will be back, though, soon enough. Um, In the meantime, the best way to stay up to date with offerings, courses, and all things living in this queer body is via my newsletter. I also tend to talk a bit more openly about my life, my queer body struggles in this newsletter. To sign up, head over to livinginthisqueerbody.com and there's a link that you can sign up with. So I have been looking forward to this interview and sharing it with you for quite some time. Several years ago, my dear friend, Catherine Brew-Ball, introduced me to the work of S.J. Norman via their article, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? First Nations Dialogues, published in the Drama Review. This article highlights the work of artists involved in the 2020 First Nations Dialogues, a series of events that addressed contemporary global indigenous performance, anti-normalization of settler structures, and land acknowledgement in Lenape Hoking, New York City performance venues. I followed SJ's work ever since then, and honestly was particularly besotted with his recent collaboration with Joseph M. Pierce called Decolonial Love Letters, which is available on Instagram. It is truly one of the most powerful pandemic art pieces I've witnessed. I'll make sure to link all of these mentions in the show notes so you can experience and support SJ's work. S.J. Norman, born 1984, is a multi-award-winning artist, writer, and curator. His career has so far spanned 18 years and has embraced a diversity of disciplines and formal outcomes, including solo and ensemble performance, installation, sculpture, text, video, and sound. He is a non-binary transmasculine person and a diaspora kuari of Wirad. Jaduri descent, born on Gadigal land. Since 2006, he has lived and worked between so-called Australia, Germany, and the UK, and the continent known to many Native peoples as Turtle Island. His practice is rooted through the volatile intersections of the social and corporeal working extensively with durational and spatial practices, as well as intimate one-to-one frameworks. Norman's primary medium is the body, the body as a spectacle of truth and a theater of fantasy, a siphon of personal and collective memory, an organism with which we are infinitely familiar and eternally estranged, a site which is equally loaded and empty of meaning, 
where histories, narratives, desires, and discourses converge and collapse. Norman frequently utilizes relational and process-based choreographies as a mode of structural critique. Reflected in his work is an abiding interest in the space of co- and intercorporeality, the forces that suffuse it, and how the live act might be utilized as a means to examine, disrupt, and re-inscribe prevailing systems of power. Drawing on embodied ancestral lineages of ceremonial praxis, Norman seeks through much of his work to implicate the body of the audience and the body of the performer as co-agents in magical acts. He has received numerous awards for both his art and his writing, including a Sydney Meyer Fellowship and an Australia Council Fellowship, two of Australia's most prestigious honors for art. In addition to his solo practice, he is also the co-curator with Cherokee scholar Joseph M. Pierce of Knowledge of Wounds, an Indigenous-led and queer-centered cultural festival and knowledge exchange platform, which saw its first iteration in Lenape Hoking, New York City, in January 2020. The Knowledge of Wounds program will continue on this year at Performance Space New York as ceremony a digital fire, a calling to vibrate in good relations across indigenous time and space. SJ also has a book of short stories. His book, Permafrost, published by the University of Queensland Press, will be released in the fall of 2021. Hannah Kent said of this book, I love this review, Permafrost is a rare, dark phenomenon of a book an exquisite collection of stories that are gloriously unsettling as they are enthralling. It takes a writer of exceptional ability to create something that will haunt a reader long after the cover is turned. S.J. Norman is such a literary genius. Reading their work is like attending a seance where afterwards the ghosts never quite leave. I am in awe. Finally, SJ is featured in the upcoming National Indigenous Triennial at the National Gallery of Australia. In this episode, we discuss the precarity of the body, how death awareness shapes SJ's view on life, and the way being in transit helps him feel most at home, and much more. Thank you, SJ, for your work and your generosity. And thank you for listening. Rest easy, everyone. SJ, thank you so much for being here and persistently making it happen. I really appreciate that. Um, I know you're busy and it's a complicated time to be having a, <laughs> to try to schedule a conversation. Oh, uh, it sure is. It's a complicated time to try and do anything. Anything. Um, yes. Yeah. No, it's it's completely my pleasure, Asha. Thank you so much for, for inviting me and having me on, yeah. on your podcast. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Happy yeah. to be here. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, so first question up is something I ask everyone and you can kind of take it wherever it takes you, um, today. Yep. Um, 
But I like to ask folks what their earliest memories are of either being in a body or learning about what it meant to be in a body. Yeah. Yeah. We'll start in the shallow end. Yeah, totally. That's Um, Yeah. (laughs) That is a huge question. Um, I love, I love huge questions. So that's so fine. Let me just settle into that question for a second. You know, a couple of things come to mind. If you'll indulge me to sort of dwell in this one for a little while. Yeah. One thing that I can offer sort of a biographical fragment that arises for me in response to that question um, is I've, I've nearly died three times in my life. Mm-hmm. And two of those times were before the age of six. Um, so those two those two experiences come to mind. And I also just had like a very vivid recollection of two of my earliest sensory memories Mm. that were related to experiences of pleasure. Mm. Um, So there's a series of, of memories came to mind and two of them were about death and two of them were about pleasure. Um, so I'll just yarn, yarn through those, those in sort of maybe no, in no particular order. Um, we can start with the first time I nearly died, which was when I was about, I think I was four, maybe five. I was in my first year of primary school. So, or, you know, what we call primary school, um, where I am, uh, but what you would call elementary school, I believe. Um, so I was, I was, yeah, I would have been five and, I um, had a serious illness, so I contracted a kind of what, I, I mean, I've been told it was like a strand of like viral meningitis or something, mm-hmm. like some some brainstem shit, like some really yeah. heavy shit. And um, I was like obviously very, very ill <laughs> as a small child with this. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a memory of being in my mother's bed um, and I remember the bed sheets she had these bed sheets that had like orange, like like burnt orange kind of rust-colored flowers mm-hmm. all over them. And, and I remember being in my mother's bed and I remember the doctor who was a, 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 like a woman called Dr. Kitchener, I believe her name was, and she had big bright red hair. And I remember my mother and Dr. Kitchener standing at the end of my bed having a conversation about me. Um, when I was semi-conscious and the doctor was telling my mother, if this kid doesn't go to the hospital, she'll die. Like this, this child is near death. You need to send this, your kid to the hospital for serious medical care. Yeah. Um, my mother is an Indigenous woman <laughs> um, with a typically Indigenous mistrust of the, you know, white Western medical uh uh, industrial complex um, and very like seriously ingrained trauma um, about that. And um, she refused to do that Um, because in her mind, you know, hospitals are places where our people go to die, um, which is, you know, not untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, 
and she flat out refused to send me to the hospital. And she did what, uh, you know, what a lot of Indigenous mothers would do. She wrapped me up in blankets and put me in front of the, of the heater and got me to sweat the fever out. Um, and, you know, here I am today. So that's, that's the first thing that came to mind. Second time would have been the same year, in fact. It wouldn't have been, it would have been quite close to that first incident. So those gates opened for me twice, you know, in a very short period of time. And the second time was in Florida of all places. The story of how I came to be in Florida is a long one. <laughs> um, but I was, um, <laughs> I was, I was in Florida, uh, in a, in a motel with my father. Mm -hmm. Um, and I nearly drowned in the hotel swimming pool. Um, and which was unusual because I was a very, very strong swimmer as a kid. Like I grew up in the water. I grew up near the coast of my early childhood, you know, here on Gadigal country and in, in Warang or so-called Sydney, which is, you know, you grow up as a kid in Sydney. On If you grow up on the coast, you just grow up in the water. You can swim before you can walk, you know. Yeah. Um, I was very much a salt, salt water kid and very strongly identified with the water as well as a kid. Like I, I kind of, I believed myself, I, I believed myself to be like a, a partially aquatic being, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I kind of, I identified as a mermaid. I was like, I want to be, I am a mermaid. I am, I am somehow from the sea. Um, and I still kind of have that sense to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, maybe the water wanted me back. Um, mm. because I, I, I just, I just have a memory of straying too far into the deep end, even though I could swim quite confidently in the ocean, in the surf, um, yeah. in this really shitty like motel swimming pool, I just like lost my feet, lost the bottom. And I remember my head slipping under and I remember losing consciousness. And then I remember that the next thing I remember is being in the, in the hotel swimming pool, in, not in the, in the hotel room with my father. And he, um, he had dived into the pool to get me out. Um, and somehow I'd been resuscitated. I don't know. Um, and I remember this vivid memory of my dad who had jumped into this hotel swimming pool with his wallet still in his back pocket, um, with a whole bunch of American dollars that he was drying off with a hairdryer. <laughs> um, right. um, so there was two times, um, mm. uh, yeah. And the, the third time I nearly drowned, the third time I nearly died was also a near, a near drowning, but I was 32 when that happened. So that was another time. So I think my, my corporeal like biography <laughs> is, is very, the fact that those were the first two incidents that came to mind to me when you asked that question. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I came into deep relationship with the possibility or, or reality of my own corporeal mortality, like at a very young age, like yeah. I came into relationship with death very, very young. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has gone away to shape my path forward ever since. Mm. The other two incidents, um, the first one, these both would have been, it was a different house and it was the house that I lived in before I had the fever. So I would have been three or maybe four. Mm. Um, and the first memory that I have was, you know, we had these flowers in our front garden, like these um Dutch irises, you know, those like spindly irises that are white with like a light colored 
purple on the inside. And I, yeah, you know, the ones I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. And we had some of those out the front of our house. And I have this very, very vivid memory of reaching my finger out. There was a, a, one was closed up in a bud. And I remember like reaching my finger out and touching it just as it opened. And like, it was like this absolute experience of wonderment. Like, like I am magic. Like I am a magic person. (laughs) I just did a magic thing. I made a flower open with my finger or, or, um, or having a sense, I guess, like of my body being a thing that uh, was in relationship with other beings and was capable of affecting yes. the, the physical conditions of the world mm-hmm. with its presence um, and, and a sense of interrelationality with another, with another being and another species. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember telling my parents this and both of them gaslighting me <laughs> and telling me that it was just a coincidence, which is weird because both of my parents are actually quite, quite woo people. But like they just like shut me down. But I remember having this like very steely conviction <laughs> that mm-hmm. that something had gone down like between me and that flower, and that mm-hmm. that was a that that was a communication that happened between us. Mm. And then the next thing that comes to mind was a birthday cake. And I remember it, I would have been about the same age. It was the same house. And I remember I would have been yeah maybe three, and I had a birthday cake. And I was having a birthday party um, and I remember I had like a special cake that was shaped like a white rabbit because um, I was obsessed uh, at that age with Alice in Wonderland, I guess, probably is why I had a white rabbit cake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, and the, the, rabbit, um, the rabbit had like a pink nose on it and it, I remember that it was sitting out on a table Somehow I was able to get to it, um, but, but it was before the party was happening and it had this bright pink icing, like frosting nose. And I remember just like sticking my finger right in it and <laughs> like, and like there was sort of like a crust, you know, the sugar crust had kind of dried a little bit. So it was like my, my finger, I would just remember the crust of the icing collapsing under the pressure of my finger. Mm-hmm. And feeling this like extreme feeling of pleasure <laughs> like, and then, and then getting badly in trouble for that, like getting badly scolded for like damaging my fancy birthday cake that someone had made for me. Like I got into hell of trouble for it, but at the time it was like, Oh my God, it felt like exquisite. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's, that's my like multi, <laughs> multi, Part answer to to that yeah. uh, question, which is like early experiences of like Aristonatos, I guess, like you know, this kind of animating uh, tension between like pleasure and eroticism, and 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 magic, and and death. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in the in the yeah, exactly. And in the context of death, there's these these kind of near death experiences you describe 
I guess it's just striking to me that there's so much vulnerability, but also that part of the memory is, is being protected, being That's, essentially yeah, saved, true. saved by, yeah. your, by your parents. And wow, that's so true. I hadn't even thought about that. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. yeah. Well, what just yeah, the, the kind of duality of that, like the yeah, the extreme vulnerability and then and the protection. But mm. I guess also then, you know, the other examples, they're sort of it just I think express a lot of the complexity of of our experience, like in our bodies, this idea of you feeling sort of powerful in this example with the, the flower, it, Mm. it's an interesting, I guess I'm just thinking about how confusing and also maybe it's confusing more as we become adults. I'm not sure, but I think it's confusing as children to both feel very powerful. Like there's a part of you that felt really powerful in your body as a swimmer. Mm. Um, and yet having an experience of vulnerability with that and, um, Mm. like this kind of tension of questioning. And I, I see that in, you know, clearly in your work, this, this sort Mm. of exploring or opening up the tension of sort of the, the vulnerability of relationality and also the, the kind of potential power. Wow. That's like such a, sorry, did I cut you off? No, Mm-mm. no, I, that's just, that's just such a, that's just such a layered and perceptive response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I never, I had never thought about those two, um, the, the two early experiences that I described that the, the two times I nearly died, I had never, um, it's interesting because my, my parents are obviously both pivotal figures in both of those incidents. Sure. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I had never, ever thought of those as being like experiences of being protected. Mm. Um, there's a lot of, I feel a lot of complexity about both of those two because, um, I don't have great relationships with either of my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've both in both cases, they've been marked by, you know, estrangement and um yeah they're 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 very I have very complicated relationships with with both parents and when I think about the themes that dominate my parental relationships or my or my relationships with my guardians my blood guardians my blood kin protection is not the first word that comes to mind like the opposite (laughs) is what comes to mind yeah like yeah and then yeah the the sort of the the tension I guess um, that you just, that you just mentioned and the way that that's informed, you know, the work that I now do as an artist or the way that I live as a, as a being in the world is, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think I hear you about the, the, the kind of like me picking up on one dimension of a story that, um, like an embodied experience that, you know, it's easy for me as sort of a, an observer to to pick up on one dimension of something that is of a relationship that is so mm. complex. Like it makes it makes sense to me um, as a human that you would not you given what you're describing about your relationship with your, you know, your blood family, that it that protection isn't really in the lexicon. Um, mm. and so it's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I'm just thinking about the thread that you picked up on there about the yeah the, the, about vulnerability and um, complex relationality and like just I'm just I just think that was just a very perceptive um, thread that you pulled out there and because the other two experiences were about me experiencing my power yes and then being scolded for it. Yes, exactly. So how do we draw a yeah. line from yeah, that yeah. to yeah. your uh, adult life? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be erotic. Oh, God. <laughs> Be erotic. Uh, mm. We're going into your uh, erotic uh, corporal biography now or no? Um, that's, it is yeah. interesting to think. Oh, I, mean, <laughs> I think, you know, one of the, pieces that I, w- one of the things that you recently did, and this happened, you know, in the, in the context of the pandemic is, is the project you did with, um, the decolonial love letters project, um, yeah. mm-hmm. that you did with, uh, Joseph Pierce. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and I guess, you know, the reason it was very is extremely compelling project and I guess it would be nice to talk about it a little bit, but I guess sure. maybe part of the the reason that I was kind of framing those early ex- experiences in the way that I did is because I see those themes. I, I felt those themes coming through in the decolonial love letters project, mm. like th- these this idea of both power and vulnerability and like the, the way that the two of you were able to kind of um, hold and move into different positions um, in relationship to one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about the project. I have a, have a description of it that I can read. Um, (laughs) And that might sure. help put some context for our listeners. So I guess you called it XXX. Um, yeah, we called it XXX because um, we couldn't, we couldn't come up with a title uh, or we were, we were, that happened because we pulled that project together really quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Like really on, on the fly. And it was an experiment and, you know, and it was sort of an invitation that, uh, that came through performance space in Sydney and Fusebox, uh, basically because I I was booked to deliver a different work um, for Fusebox Festival in Austin, um, and obviously then the Panini happened, um, and we all got you know stuck where we are, and and everything got cancelled. Um, and Jeff Kahn, who's the artistic director of performance space here in Sydney, is someone who I've had a very, very long relationship with as a as a creative um, as a creative producer. And uh, we, I was in, you know, Joseph was in Sydney at the time because he came out with me when I was um, here to install my Sydney Biennale show, which Joseph was a part of. Um, was one of the subjects of that work, and we were kind of just having a drink one night, uh, the three of us and talking through, uh, how we were gonna, um, how we were going to recuperate, uh, these sort of canceled gigs. And 
Jeff was talking about live works festivals still going ahead. And we were kind of like, well, I've got to do something. We'll do something. And I was just like, well, what if we, how about we just like write each other love letters and like read it on Instagram? <laughs> it was like a really throwaway idea that none of us really kind of totally took seriously mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. Um, and then we just like, we're suddenly committed to do it. And then, um, and the, we got sent the, um, you know, the proofs of the marketing copy, and uh, and it just had XXX in brackets where the title should be. Ah, uh-huh. and <laughs> yeah, and we uh, were like, oh, what are we going to call this thing? Like everything sounded like we just everything we came out with sounded naff. And then it was just like, ah, oh, maybe it's just called XXX because of you know the the multiplicity of readings that can be read into that as a demarcation of a space of absence and presence and a duality of absence and presence. Um, And also the parentheses was really important because, Mm. you know, we're both, um, you know, queer native people, like, you know, I'm not going to speak on Joseph's behalf, but for myself, like, you know, there's a lot of things (laughs) that go in parentheses after my name. You know what Mm. I mean? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of qualifying things about who I am, a lot of intersections that need to be articulated whenever I'm doing anything. Um, and I think we kind of wanted to to speak to that as well. Mm. So the title was a was a happy accident in the way that titles often are, to be mm. honest. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm happy for you to talk about the work because I'm I am like terrible at talking about my own work often. <laughs> I get really like in in knots trying to describe what it is that I, that I do. So I, I'm very happy for you to describe it or to, to just read the yeah, context. Sure. I can read the context. I feel like you're doing a pretty great job of um, describing your work, but it also, it's, it's um, so XXX um, proposes a queer decolonial inhabitation of the epistolary form an artifact of the Western literary canon as a space through which to trace the remote entanglement of two indigenous people in creative, intimate, and embodied kinship, invoking the violence of separation and the erotic poesis of distance. Norman and Pierce consider what it means to express indigenous love in the colonizer's language. I guess, and, and in the Instagram um, description. I love this part where it's like, do you like next level PDA? Um, and apparently <laughs> I do because I was like <laughs> desperately waiting for each new installment as the, as the project was unfolding. Um, so that revealed a little bit about me. Uh, <laughs> it surprised me. Um, but Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> well, you're not alone there. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. But um, it was it it was both a really beautiful and like and kind of heart wrenching project. But I also wonder, you know, if you could describe what it felt like to um, kind of be in that erotic space in the midst of a pandemic I don't know if those two things those tensions just feel I don't know I've been talking a lot about that with many of my Mm. like my clients and um you know just 
that dilemma. Um, yeah. so I think that, w- that gave the, that offered the project like an, a really interesting dimension too. Mm. That liminal tension between distance and intimacy, yeah. um, is it has been like a, a consistent theme of my entire life. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up, I grew up moving around a lot, you know, I grew up really like between many places, between many sort of many families, um, but at the same time also being like the singular charge of um, a single mother, you know. Um, So I had on the one hand this very, very, very close, like toxically close at times relationship with my mother Um, because I, you know, single parent. Yep. I'm not an only child. I have three siblings, but I was the by the youngest by far. Um, so it was just me and her. It was really, it was really just me and my mum. Um, and we also lived mostly in regional areas. So I had a very, I had a, I had experiences of like really, really profound isolation as a child. Um, and she also, she, my mother worked 14 hour days, like seven days a week, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time on my own and then a lot of time with my mother, but then also, um, you know, a lot of time with like heaps of like random extended family and like very, like a very queered um, and very, you know, diasporically indigenous um, family structure. Like mm. I, there was by no means a nuclear family structure. There was always random people in our house crashing in our, you know, in our lounge room or wherever. And and I also had several kind of like adopted families that I would spend extended periods of time with. And so it was this, it was this tension between being around a lot of people and being around big networks of, of kin or people that were chosen or designated kin rather than blood kin mm-hmm. um, and being very alone and being very isolated and then, um, and also moving a lot. Um, so that's how I learned to exist in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and that has been the governing theme of my whole life. You know, I, I got, I got out of Australia as soon as I could Um you know, I, I had a very, very early sense that I was going to live my life. Transit was going to be a theme. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I left Australia when I was 21. And the first place I went was Tokyo. I went to Japan because I was doing dance training there with a couple with a company in Tokyo. And, um, you know, I, I worked and saved up my money and I pissed off and then I went to the UK and then I came back to Australia and then I moved to Germany and I was based in Berlin for you know the better part of 11 years and um but I was always I was always bilocated or trilocated between Australia and multiple other places um and I think I chose the life that I chose because it supported that because I have always felt the most at home in motion, you know? And so for me, um, getting stuck is like my nightmare, yes. <laughs> you know, stasis is something that my body is not comfortable with. I, and so, so landing back in Australia and then having, you know, having everything happen and, and getting, um, and getting stuck here was, was a difficult thing for me to, um, process. And cause I have, um, you know, communities in in Europe and on Turtle Island and Lanapahoking in New York in particular, um, 
and people that I love all over the world and families all over the world. But I've kind of learned to metabolize that, you know, like I've learned how to, how to hold close, you know, cardinal intimacies in my life over very long distances, over, mm. you know, very yeah. extended nonlinear temporalities. So doing XXX or doing the Colonial Love Letters Project just felt like an extension or a very natural expression of something that, of a, of a, of a way of being that I feel is quite innate to me at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was tough though. It was a tough project to do. It was, it was pretty grueling. I mean, it was beautiful. Um, and it was beautiful, especially because, you know, we knew that so many people were tuning in. I was blown away by the responses that we had to that, to that work, you know, oh. um, because it just, it just kind of, I don't know, it just hit different. And because it was so simple um, and it was just coming from a very heartfelt, very genuine place of us wanting to hold a sort of ceremonial container to connect with each other through the written word. Um, Cause you know, we're both writers, but we're both indigenous writers who have a certain kind of a, a particular relationship with uh, the English language right. um, having, having, you know, lost um our, our 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 ancestral languages you know I mean English is an ancestral language for me and for both of us as well like we also both have um you know like Anglo heritage too or I certainly do my father's English um mm-hmm. but yeah so what do was, you um, what do you it, make yeah. of the the resp- it sounds like it was surprising to you and there are all sorts of you know your work encompasses many different ways that you sort of um yeah. implicate your body and your personal you know the like really deep honest and earnest <laughs> expressions of your body's experience um i guess i just wonder what it, it maybe it was the context of of the pandemic and the the kind mm. of language of longing and the form and the way you I'm not sure, but I'm curious what you mm. think drew people into it in a particular mm. way. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think it was yeah. different for a lot of people. Um, and I don't, I don't want to kind of assume what my, what our audience's experiences were. Um, I think that there were factors around the accessibility of that project in particular mm. that meant that it just, that it just got to, it just got to more people yes. <laughs> um, because, yes. you know, because it did happen on Instagram and that was a very conscious choice to do it on Instagram yeah. um, because that's a space where we all are, it's, it's a digital commons where we're all already gathering yeah. Um, yeah. at this time in particular and it was like, you know, how do we, how do, what, what offering do we make to this space? If we can't offer, if we can't gather in, in physical space, then let's use this, um, let's utilize this like highly problematic platform, sure. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, but that we all have access to, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, and which our communities all over the world are accessing right now and using as a space, um, to gather and to, to give each other solace and medicine, right. um, so I think that was a factor because, yeah. you know, most of the, most of the live work that I have done, um, has been, you know, for small audiences, I don't make spectacle based work. Um, I make 
ritual-based work. Uh, and I've worked, you know, I've done a lot of one-to-one work, um, a lot of intimate work. You know, I think the, I think the most people that I've ever had in a room for a, for a performance was maybe for psychotrix, which was the, the work that, um, that I maybe the, I think you mentioned when we were chatting before we started the, the work that yeah. first that you first became aware of of mine, which is the work that I did in New York in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the image of which became the promo part of the promo for the following knowledge of wounds, which is the curatorial project that I now do with Joseph. Um, but I think, you know, for that work, that working, as I would call it, to borrow, you know, the language of, of magical praxis um, or ritual praxis, that working, I think there was like 50 people present for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's the biggest audience I've ever had. That's the biggest live audience I've ever had in a, in a single room at a single time, you know. Yeah. The rest of my work is like ordinarily for, um, you know, for very small audiences, long durational pieces that involve like, you know, shifts of six to eight hours where groups of say six or four or one person come in at a time, but I don't make large scale work for large scale audiences. And I'm very, um, my, my practice is like very, uh, very anti-spectacle. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so was XXX, like XXX was obviously deeply intimate, um, and deeply anti-spectacle too, but it was, it was just widely accessible and it was, um, mm-hmm. it had a ritual framework to where, you know, we, we read each other's text every day at sunset. You know, I read, I read Joseph's letter to me at sunset, Sydney time, and he read my letter to him at sunset, New York time. And so that meant with the, with the kind of, with the time zones between our two perspective geographical spaces that everyone who was engaging who was in or close to that that longitude um could have a reading in the morning and a reading at night so everyone kind of it, it fell into a rhythm with it and there was this kind of um regularity and temporality to it that I think uh was something that people could anchor into and yes. so many audiences told me that that was a really important part of it that they were just like waiting for that letter every morning and yes. every evening and that it became a part of their day and that was such a beautiful thing um, to hear, such a beautiful response. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely one of them. Um, yeah, thanks for talking about that piece. And I, you know, yeah. we, it's, there's so many, there's so much of your work that, you know, we're not going to get a chance to talk about, but I guess, and people can find out about, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, how people can see and connect with all of the work that you're doing. But I guess one of the things I really wanted to also kind of talk to you about is, and again, it's sort of similar to the first question, like, you know, go wherever it takes Mm. you, but I'm curious if what your thoughts are about, and I know this is a, a really spacious topic, but the, the relationship between your body as sort of a queer body and a body that holds, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly, but you know, your, your public, the way that you, you know, kind of present in public is as someone who has, who, who, who lives with chronic illness or illness. Um, and, uh, I guess just how that has, how those, those kind of parts of your identity maybe 
intersect or, mm. um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Huge question again. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I trying know. to, th- I'm trying to, I'm trying to find a place to start with that. Let yeah. me just, yeah. Sickness has always been a part of my life, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I was, I was ill frequently as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I live with, yeah, multiple, um, chronic progressive illnesses now. Um, I'm also a, a neurodivergent person. I'm transgender. Um, and I am in a process of medical transition right now where I'm, I've, you know, um, I don't, I don't even know if you can call it a process. I, I am, I am, on, I am on hormones and I am currently accessing gender affirming healthcare as a transgender yep. person. Um, yep. you know, I'm, I'm heaps queer. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just, yeah, real, real, real queer. Um, and always have been, you know, um, mm. and that's, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an indigenous person. I'm a mixed race person. Um, you know, I come from, you know, I don't, I don't want to abuse this word liminality, but like that is, that is a condition that has kind of con- like defined my, my experience of my body, my whole life. You know, maybe one of the reasons also why I think about those early experiences of, of death, you know, um, is because thresholds and limits have always been something that I've had to reckon with. I mean, it's something yes. that we all had to reckon with, but it's something that I feel in very deep relationship with um, and which has informed the way that I have practiced as an artist and the way that I have lived my life, you know. And sickness is a huge part of that story. Transness and queerness are huge parts of that story. I think, you know, like I, I, was brought up or I, I think it was, I've always from my earliest, earliest memories experienced my body as a paradox or a series of paradoxes or something, a very prismatic space uh, and a space of volatility and fluidity. Um, Again, my relationship with water is a big part of that. Um, I I have a Scorpio stellium in my 12th house uh, and a Scorpio rising. So, you know, for all my like fellow astrology queers out there, like that's a, you know, under deep artesian watery themes have been a big part of my life. And, you know, the, 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 one of the, one of the diseases that I live with or one of the one of the um, challenges that I live with in my body is a, is a, an illness of fluid metabolism. Um, mm. So it's a, an illness that causes chronic swelling yeah. um, in my tissues. Mm. So water is a big theme. Um, and I think like, yeah, I've always experienced my body as, as a series of paradoxes and also as as being like very, and I, I'm, I'm not, not saying this isn't in a, like an emo way, but like as just being very intensely othered, like from my, the, ear, the earliest experience of consciousness, mm-hmm. um, you know, and othered in often, in othered in quite violent ways often. And um, I've experienced like a lot of violence in my life as a direct result of that, that otherness. And, um, I've done a lot of violence to myself, um, 
in my life also yeah. as a way of metabolizing that sense of otherness. Um, and I think I made a choice when I was very young um, or when I was a teenager probably that, you know, that maybe like loving or accepting this, uh, my corporeal self was not going to be something that was accessible to me. Um, but that I could find a way, uh, to treat my body as a site of inquiry, um, and approach my body with curiosity, um, and as a site of, of, of ongoing research, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And, um, I think a lot of the, a lot of that has been about exploring limits for me up until now, you know, both in my, in my personal life, like, and in my artistic life. And I don't, there's not really a strong, you know, delineation between those two zones. I mean, like my work is highly, highly personal, um, obviously, and, and implicates my body as a material, like the literal materiality of my blood and, and hair and stuff is all, is a part of my work. But I think, you know, having, being sick and being in relationship with pain, physical pain, um, has been like, I just made a choice really early on that I would, that I, that I had to just lean into that, (laughs) um, that leaning into that pain was, was the, was the path that was available to me and the path that I was called to explore and follow. And that that had the potential to also be transformative and ecstatic, you know, Um, and, you know, I've, I have deliberately sought out, um, my physical limits in many, many ways in my work. Um, not just kind of like as a, as a thing to do, you know, because I I also have to, you know, cite my work, like within a tradition of, of, you know, in a canon of Western body art, um, which, you know, in many ways I honor that lineage, I absolutely honor that lineage, but at the same time, I'm quite resistant to it because I'm aware of all the ways in which that lineage um, has borrowed from or stolen from or appropriated uh, Indigenous ceremonial praxis. Mm. Um, And much of my work has been involved in reclaiming or, or, um, or using that space to, to reclaim or recuperate my, my own body's relationship to, ceremonial praxis that I've been divested of by colonization, you know, that I personally have been divested of a lot of different paths and a lot of different practices and a lot of different subcultural communities have, have led me into that space or or, or sort of fed me along that trajectory. Mm. You know, um, I've been involved in kink and BDSM my whole adult life, Um, you know, rave culture and techno and like long durational partying, Mm -hmm. Um, full on like Dionysiac multi-day partying has been a big part of my life. Um, At the same time, you know, I think I went on my first Vipassana meditation retreat when I was like 19 or something and learned to to sit in bodily pain and observe bodily pain. Mm -hmm. I started, you know, like I've had, you know, relationships with a lot of different physical practices as part of my performance training. Like I never, I never had formal performance training and I also never went to art school. Like I'm, I'm like a, I'm a first generation high school graduate 
um, and definitely, obviously, a first-generation university graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow, I'm an artist with a with a with a career. Um, but you know, my I didn't go to art school. Didn't go to. I didn't have any formal performance training. I, I trained with um, with companies and with elders, like in my performance communities. I mentioned before that I went to Japan and trained there with people there. I also, um, you know, trained with people here. I had like I don't know. I've had a a pretty like deep and committed like asana yoga practice since I was about 17, you know, like I've done, I've, I've, there's been a lot of different, like a huge mixed bag of different things. Um, and a continuum of like, um, of things that were explicitly about nourishment and discipline and then things that were about conscious and intentional self obliteration. (laughs) And I say that in the most positive possible sense of that word, you know? yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate you kind of drawing out like what, what be, what experiences sort of became possible as a result of the leaning into pain and drawing a distinction between the, the sort of quote unquote, like loving one's body or accepting Mm. a body that is so, you know, that, that is in pain that is, um, carrying intergenerational trauma is is holding so much, you know, that there's something about, um, I mean, I I know you, you know, this and, and, but there is really something about what opens up or what happens or becomes possible for a chronically ill body. Mm. Um, when there isn't a, a self-attack. Yeah. When there isn't where the, there is some kind of curiosity and I, I wonder how much, you know, I'm just, this is sort of based on my own experience of living in a chronically ill body. I I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm really taken by the idea that you can describe your body in the context of the sea, you know, like as mm. sort of prismatic, volatile, but also, you know, I mean that, that you have a way of kind of relating to your body that resonates for you that, and I don't mean to say that it's, it sounds like you, you know, kind of idealize or, you know, don't suffer. It's just that mm. there, it maybe it sounds like there's a way that you've, learned over the years with all of these different practices to have moments of, of embodiment, not necessarily, um, (laughs) pleasure in that embodiment Mm. always, but you know, that, that you've, you haven't fought against what your body is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I absolutely have in my ways I'm learning not to, (laughs) Um, yeah, I think I, I had a very, very adversarial relationship with my body for a very long time. Um, it was really only in my late teens that I started kind of really becoming invested in understanding what this thing is that I'm stuck with. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, like, what is this? I'm stuck with it. Um, so we're just going to have to get to be on some kind of terms with each other. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, you know, whereas I think through 
through my adolescence and through my childhood, you know, my, my relationship with my body was, was, um, was really marked by shame. Um, and, and, and to an extent where I'm only now at the age of 37, uncovering just how deep that goes. Um, and I think there's been certain things that have been happening for me, you know, over the last two years to 18 months or so, certain sort of cycles of transformation that I've been undergoing, medical transition being one of them, mm -hmm. or medical gender affirmation being one of them. I've also had a, a bunch of major surgeries. Um, you know, I it's that that has like peeled back some layers on on just how much deep uh deep shame was mm. was put on me as a as a child and as a young person because I I lived in a body that was sick. I lived in a body that was aberrant in a yep. bunch of ways, you know. I lived in a body that was too big, <laughs> you know, was always um, you know, like I was always a big kid. Like mm. I was just a big, I've always I'm a bigger bodied person. I've always been a bigger bodied person. Um and I was, you know, taught to really hate myself for that, you know, and that is some really deep conditioning um, that takes a lifetime of not even undoing but just reckoning with, you know, yeah. and, and queerness for me or coming into an understanding of my queerness and, and an early understanding of my, my transness or my gender liminality, you know, that was something that I experienced as being very liberating. Yes. In fact, yes. um, that was, that was, you know, I, and I recognize that for many, many people, it's much more, it's much more complicated than that. Um, you know, I was very blessed uh, in the sense that like I had, I was, I was so, so othered and so monstrous, like in so many ways as a young person and as a kid that like, um, and in ways that felt so abject and so like, so marked with, with shame and, and was so, was so degraded, you know, in the eyes of other, other people, yes. the people around me that, that queerness or coming into an awareness of my queerness, that was like power. That was like, okay, I am a freak, but yes. there are other freaks <laughs> and there is like a lineage of freaks yes. that I belong to yes. and there is a culture that I belong to. And even, I mean, this is like, you know, we're talking like mid-90s regional Australia with like pre-internet. So it's not like it's not like I had access to queer culture. I did not. <laughs> like, um, but I, I still had a sense that mm -hmm. my people were somewhere you know? Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and that, that it was, that that was a good thing and that that was a thing to, that I could be proud of and that that was a container, um, exactly. and something and, and a form of brilliance. And, yes. um, yeah, so I guess that was, um, that was, a that was, that was medicine for me, you know, yes. um, and still is, you know, yes. um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think that might be a good place to stop. Um, <laughs> sure. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about how all of these learnings um have have uh 
have and continue to manifest in the work um, that you're you're doing in the world. And there are a couple of really significant, major, um, upcoming projects that I would love for you to talk about, and we'll link in the show notes so that folks yeah. can find out about them. Yeah, I got a few things coming up. Where do you want to oh, start? Yeah. You, you start. <laughs> got, got a real. Good <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah so the first the first uh you know the first big thing that's happening I'm in, in no in no order of uh, of of importance um I I have I have my first book coming out this year um which is a huge deal <laughs> um, yeah uh I'm, I'm trying to make it less of a huge deal in my mind so I don't like completely freak out about it um but I do have my first book coming out this year and uh, it's, it's especially significant because it is a book that has taken me more than a decade to write. It's, I started, it's a book of short stories, um, called Permafrost and it's coming out through UQP or the University of Queensland Press in Australia. Uh, it will be released in October of this year. The Australian New Zealand release will be October and then there'll be an international release the following year, I think. Um, so that's happening. Um, and it's a book of, I guess, queer ghost stories um, is, mm-hmm. is like the easiest, like most expedient way to describe it. Or they're, they're stories about hauntings and, and about haunted bodies and, and liminal beings and relationships with liminal beings and um, the relationship between like uh, corporeal and non-corporeal or post-corporeal existence, um, mm. you know. And I started writing those stories when I was 19. <laughs> the oldest one in the book I, I wrote when I was 19. Um, and I'm now 37. So, wow. yeah, I've been slow, slowly, slowly, slowly writing this book for a long time. Wrote the bulk of the manuscript in my early 20s and then shelved it when I was about 25, Um cause I just had some experiences that made me not want to be a writer. <laughs> um, and, and I sort of had like a 10 year writer's block and then decided, uh, decided a couple of years ago that it was like, that it was the do or die moment for this manuscript and, and pulled it out of a, a drawer and submitted it to a prize for the sake of just kind of getting my hands back on it again and seeing if it was viable and much to my surprise, it won. Um, and you know, um, a literary agency representation and a publishing contract followed. Um, so that's exciting. And that's also, uh, yeah, an important moment for me in terms of coming back into my, my writing practice and not, not moving away from performance, um, or moving away from visual art, but, but, but refocusing back on being a, a writer, which is a deeply ecstatic an important practice for me. Yeah. Um, so that's happening. Um, and the other thing that's happening is the National Indigenous Triennial, um, which I'm not supposed to talk about yet as we are recording this, but by the time this podcast yes. comes out, the embargo will be lifted and I can talk about it. Um, so I'm very, very thrilled to be part of the National Indigenous Triennial at the National Gallery of Australia um, this year. And the curator is Hedy Perkins, who is a very senior curator of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art 
she's out in the Kalkadoon woman and um and is a real is a mum to me and so mm-hmm. many um and to a lot of people in fact very very um respected and senior woman and I'm so happy to be part of that show I've also got um some work being acquired by the National Gallery which is really exciting wow. as part of that wow. and then the third thing is knowledge of wounds which I've foreshadowed um which is the the program that um that Joseph and I do so I mean knowledge of wounds is the kind of name that we have for our collaborative curatorial practice so yeah. you know Joseph uh, you know is, is has, has been mentioned um you know an important person in my life um and we have a very specific and unique relationship and we are also um collaborators curatorial collaborators um joseph is an academic um he's a professor of of latin american studies um and literatures and is also a member of the cherokee nation and um is is based in lenape hoking in new york and um we we run that program together so knowledge of wounds is um I really, it's quite a hard entity to describe on the fly, but uh, it is a, a multidisciplinary cultural and knowledge exchange platform that is Indigenous-led and queer-centred, queer and trans-centred, um, very much focused on, on the body and on embodiment and on ceremonial practice um, or ritual practice and uh, what it means to be in kinship and um, we are announcing our second, the second iteration of Knowledge of Wounds. The first iteration happened in January 2020, so just before yeah. this nightmare kicked off. Um, you know, we gathered in 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 New York and had a two day gathering of, of of artists and and cultural workers and knowledge keepers from all over Turtle Island. You know, and parts of of Latin America and um, and Oceania and Australia and Aotearoa and had mob from all over there um, around that fire for those two days and it's funny because we were all kind of talking to each other and we were like you know we were like we feel like some shit's about to go down like mm-hmm. we just have a feeling that some shit's about to go down um, and lo and behold here wow. we are um, so the second iteration of Knowledge of Wounds is going to be happening completely digitally. It's 12 months of programming. Uh, we launch on the solstice, um, which I believe will be just around about the time this podcast comes out, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we launch on the summer the summer solstice in, in the Northern Hemisphere, the winter solstice in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, is when we'll launch our website and launch our program. And we are working with a celestial calendar the solar and lunar calendar um so there's four quarters of the year going from the solstice to the equinox to the solstice to the equinox to the solstice um so four quarters of programming that will mm. feature you know a, a multi-pronged approach to knowledge exchange in in the digital diaspora um mm. all of it focused and led by queer indigenous artists and knowledge keepers and knowledge workers so yeah mm. Yeah, just I yeah, I really look forward to um to that and to to kind of sharing. I'm so glad we're able to share the the information about about all of your upcoming projects with yeah this audience. Um because I know that 
that this audience is definitely down with a lot of these themes and um, eager for for this content. So thank you for sure. I would. Um, it's my it's my pleasure. Um, thanks for the opportunity to to share all of that. I would direct people to my website. Yep. Um, but my website is like horrifically out of date. It is like years out of date. <laughs> um, so there's nothing, you'll find nothing about knowledge of wounds on my website. You'll find nothing about my like last three pieces of work on my website. Cause I run it and I don't have time or spoons <laughs> to mm-hmm. keep it updated. Um, so the best way to, to keep abreast of my activities is, is through Instagram at the moment. Um, and uh, Knowledge of Wounds also has an Instagram page now too. Um, yep. The Decolonial Love Letters are all still up there. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to go, if anyone wants to go back and revisit that project, all of the all of the recordings are still there and accessible. So, yes. 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 Awesome. Well, SJ, I loved talking with you. I'm so glad we were able to do this. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Asha. It's been a total pleasure. Lovely to be on with you.